Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for this webinar. The title of it is Making Sense of Our Sexually Confused Culture. I am Rick Thomas, and I'm grateful that you are here. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, thank you so much for joining me. And as you have time and you desire, please come over to our website, and you're welcome to watch the full video presentation. All of our webinars are free, so I want you to benefit from the visuals and as well as share this webinar with, with your friends. As I was building out the slides for the webinar, I had a particular demographic in mind, and that is our Gen Z culture, also called iGen. These are the people who were born after 1996. Uh, they don't know any other time but cyberspace and the internet. They are not millennials or baby boomers, and so they can't compare this day with a previous generation. And so I wanted to think like them and build a presentation that would speak directly to them because they do need to make sense of our sexually confused culture. Now, this webinar is for the millennials and the baby boomers, but what I'm saying here is, is that we can compare our generation to this generation, and, and we can make a little more sense of it because we do have something to compare it to. But if you're born inside of a generation, that is all that you know. And so I wanted to build this for them. And so this webinar is particularly beneficial for those who are in their 20s and teenagers, but not necessarily all teenagers. And so parents, I want you to uh, screen this because depending on the age and the maturity level of your teen, you may not want to recommend it to them now. But at some point, we need to bring all of our children up to the place to where they can not only discern our culture and know what's going on, but they will be able to engage it biblically. And I trust that this webinar will help them help you in that process. Now, also, if you want to do a a fuller or a deeper dive into all things sexual confusion, I do have another webinar that would be hugely beneficial for you, and the title of it is Transgenderism. And so I would encourage you to couple these two webinars together, this one, Making Sense of Our Sexually Confused Culture, and then the Transgender webinar also. It is taking a specific aspect of sexual confusion and presenting it, because these are questions that I am being asked now. I was sharing with someone recently that I can't believe some of the things that that I am, some of the questions that are being asked me and some of the things that I'm saying and talking about and the resources that I am building, but that is just where we are. And so we want to be on the front end of this. We don't want to be on the defensive or uh, be behind our culture. We want to stay relevant, understanding what is going on and then speaking into it biblically. And I trust this webinar will do just that. The big idea is that today's sexually confused society is not difficult to understand if you interpret the problem through the correct filter, meaning you have the right worldview to see and discern what is happening before our eyes. It used to be that everyone identified as a male or female based on objective anatomical evidence at a child's birth. 
But in the past few decades, what has always been evident to the naked eye is now fluid. It is to be determined based on other criteria that you can't know, as they say, until the child becomes an adult. And so in this webinar, I seek to make sense of sexual confusion while offering help and hope for those caught in the tension of two worldviews. And that is exactly what uh, the issue here is in our culture. It's two competing antithetical worldviews that are vying for authoritative control over our minds. And so with these things in mind, I want to talk about the most important aspect, the starting point with how you make sense of a sexually confused culture and that is understanding worldview. And so I want to talk about worldview, as you see in this slide. What I'm asking here is how do we become us? How do we become the people that we are? Why do we think the way that we think? We're talking about worldview development. And so as you think about your worldview, how did your worldview develop? How did you come to believe what you believe today? The worldview that you have will give you the information. It will give you the interpretations for the things that you see. And then based on those interpretations, your worldview will set the trajectory to your life. And so our culture, the Gen Z culture, they, are having, they have a developing worldview, but there are two competing authorities. They are vying to take control. They want to set up management in the minds of, of these teenagers and these young people because they want them to go down a particular path. Now, there is a biblical worldview and there's a non-biblical worldview to put them in two big buckets. Those are the two primary worldviews and they have to choose one or the other. And so it's essential as you think about a sexually confused culture that you go back to the beginning. How do we view this? Because again, that will set the trajectory for how we engage it. And so I want to talk about worldview development. I'm going to take the word worldview and I'm going to stretch it out like a, a rubber mat, rubber band and then I want to look at these sequential elements that make up a worldview, how we become us. And there are five specific links that lay out before us that create the worldview that we have, whatever our worldview may be. And so I want to walk through this linkage. This sequential order is essential. And so as you think about worldview development, the first link in the chain is presupposition. That is our starting point. Now, maybe a, a good synonym for presupposition would be assumption. We have assumptions you see, no data is neutral in itself. No fact is neutral. Everything that we look at, no matter what it is, we bring our presupposition to it. Our presupposition is our interpretive filter. We already have assumptions before we ever step into the fact before we ever see the thing. For example, two people could be looking at a biblical text that talks about homosexuality. 
they will not look at that text objectively the way God does. Only God is objective. We are subjective creatures, and so we are going to bring our assumptions into the text, and that's why we will come to two different interpretations because we have two different presuppositions. And so one person will look at a text, let's say Romans 1, for example, and they will say that homosexuality is a sin, which is what I believe. But then another person with a different set of assumptions or another presupposition will read the exact same passage word for word and say that, well, God made me this way, and it's not a sin, and it's okay to be gay and to be a Christian. And you say, how can that be? Well, they have two different assumptions. They have two different presuppositions. And it is important for all of us to understand this. Sometimes we can be flummoxed or perplexed by why do they believe what they believe? Why do they do what they do? They do it because of their worldview, and if you don't understand them, you can be frustrated with them, and you may engage them in inappropriate ways because you're not understanding worldview development. And so when you think about worldview, the first link in the chain that builds a worldview are our assumptions or our presupposition. Now, that begs a question. The question is, where do our assumptions come from? I mean, there has to be something before the presupposition that creates a presupposition, and that's an astute question, and so I do want to talk about that before I go to link number two. Where do we get our assumptions? I want to draw that out for you, and for those of you who have seen my Human Motivation and Shaping Influence webinar, you recognize this pyramid that's before you. Now, I'm not going to repeat all the information in my Human Motivation and Shaping Influences webinar, but I do... I really encourage you, I appeal to you to watch that webinar. It is one hour, and it it drills down into a granular level about why we do what we do and how we build out our presuppositions, but I don't want to repeat that here, but I want to briefly walk through this slide, build out this pyramid so that you can see quickly how we build or how we come to our assumptions, how we create our presuppositions. And so here is a short list of some of our shaping influences, the things that the tributaries that come into our lives from birth and forward that shape us, mold us, make us into the people that we are that create these assumptions that eventually build out into our worldview. Now, as we look at a list of shaping influences, the first thing on the list and the best thing on the list is that we are made in God's image. We are image bearers. Now, what that means is, is that we are like God in some ways, that God has communicated things to us. We have communicable attributes, attributes that are God's that have been communicated or given to us. For example, God is love. And so we have the capacity to love. I'm not saying that we do love all the time or love well, but we have the capacity to love. God is good, and so we have the capacity to be good people. 
God is also a community, Father, Son, and Spirit, and there is a compulsion, there's an impulse within us to want to be part of a community. And there are many other ways in which God made in the image of God, what that means, but these are good things, and that is a huge shaping influence that makes us different from the creatures of the field. Now, also, there are unknown shaping influences. And what that means is exactly what it says. There's an element of mystery to who we are. Why does he act that way? Well, I don't know in totality, because you're asking an omniscient question, and I I am not omniscient. I am a finite person. It is said, I have heard that uh, scientists have said that, uh, that they know more about the universe than the human brain. And we have to be comfortable with this mystery here. We have to be comfortable with not knowing everything that there is to know that you could possibly know about ourselves. And so unknown influences has to be on the table. And then there are genetic influences, which are obvious, whether it's our IQ or our height. Uh, We are unique individuals, genetically speaking. And then in utero, as our mothers carried us in their wombs, and and we have heard uh, illustrations of that, like the horrific illustrations that are more outlier, anomaly, but yet they are truly real, like a cracked baby. But whatever those shaping influences are, being carried in our mother's womb does have an influence in the kind of people that we are. And so as you look at this list here thus far, everything on this list is before we are born, these first four things. We're made in God's image. They're unknown uh, shaping influences. They're genetic shaping influences. They're in utero shaping influences. These are some of the things. These are the building blocks that make us uniquely who we are. And so it's important to understand these things because the person that you're talking to is not like you. They have a different worldview. They have been shaped differently from you. Let's continue on. There are familial shaping influences and peers From the moment that you're born, you're born in a family and you have peer influences, whether it's parents or siblings or friends or schoolmates or those within your community or cul-de-sac, family and peers. And then the academy, your journey through school, however long that may be. There are also cultural influences. Imagine being born in Germany or being born in Europe or born in South America or North America or born in Asia. Depending on where you come from, your culture will shape you differently, not only shape you differently because of the geographical uh, inst- uh, the ge- geographical pe- pe- peculiarities of our culture, but culture changes as well. And so I was born in the southern part of the United States, that's my culture, but it is radically different today than it was when I was a kid. And so culture is not only has a geographical distinction, it also has a chronological distinction too. And then there are politics and religion. Everybody is religious, whether they belong to a religious system or not. We are free moral agents. We have a morality because, again, we're made in the image of God, and so There is a religiousness about all of us, regardless of our associations. And so as you look at this list, a short list, non-exhaustive, you see some of the things that make us who we are. And then finally, at the top of the pyramid is free will. 
I say that because some people could look at this and say, well, I am just a victim to these external shaping influences that have made me into the person that I am. Well, we're not just passive receptors to our culture and our world and these outside influences. We also make decisions, too. And so all of these things working together, you could think of it like a, a bowl that you fill with ingredients and you shake it all up and it makes you who you are. These are some of the things that create the assumptions or the presuppositions that we have. And again, as I said earlier, when you are talking to someone, you got to know this. What you have to know is not necessarily the specifics of their shaping influences. I mean, it would be good for you to watch the webinar, Human Motivation and Shaping Influences, but you got to know that that individual is different and and they have these different shaping tributaries that have fl flowed into their life and have shaped them in a unique way. Plus, they have made decisions all along the way that have made them who they are. What I'm describing here is what Paul called in Ephesians 4.22, our former manner of life, the old man, that person that we bring into our Christian experience. And the reason I make this point is because some people can look at their shaping influences and, and go into despair, and I don't want you to do that because we have a gospel. Regardless of what those shaping influences are and that early worldview development that we had, we have a gospel, and so we can be new creations in Christ. I spent the first 25 years of my life being shaped in an unbiblical way. My former manner of life was shaped for a quarter of, an, of a century, and I had a distinct worldview that was anti-gospel. But the great news is, is that God came into my life. He imposed himself on my life and regenerated me and began to give me a new worldview. And so that is the hope that we have. And so there's no need for any of us to despair, no matter what our shaping influences have been and whatever our worldview may be, it can evolve because we have a gospel. And so these are some of the things that make up our presupposition, the assumptions that we bring into every conversation, everything that we look at, including the sexual confusion going on in our culture. And so these assumptions or presupposition create a lens Perhaps you can think of it like a pair of glasses. Everybody has a unique pair of glasses that gives them an interpretation to what they are seeing and what they are experiencing. And so we're talking about worldview development, and there are five, uh, there are five links to this chain, and I've mentioned three of them thus far. First of all, they are presupposition, and I've done a granular uh, overview of how we come to our uh, assumptions or presupposition by looking at the shaping influence pyramid. All of that creates a lens, the spectacles that we wear, and then as we look through the spectacles, we begin to draw interpretation 
interpretations, and that's why two people can look at the same biblical text in Romans 1, for example, and come to two different interpretations. Of course, number four, the fourth link in the chain of worldview development is a belief system. Now we're building our systems, our belief system specifically, the things that we hold to be true. And then number five, we have our worldview. This is how we become us. Presupposition creates a lens where we get our interpretation, which is how we build our beliefs, and that is how we have a worldview. Now, on top of that, or what flows out of that, are five more things from our worldview development, and that is our personal development. Personal development is where we now live out our worldview. And so the first thing in in that list, that would be formation. Now we're forming into a unique kind of, of individual. Number seven would be practice. As we're forming, we're practicing the belief systems, the worldview that we have, and then we will confirm whether this, this is a good path to go down or not. When I was 15 years old, I ended up in jail, and so my worldview was forming, I was practicing, I was moving down a a very clear path, and then at 15, I was confirming the things that I believed, and I realized that, well, this is not a good path. The, the truths that I hold, the beliefs that I have, the people that I follow, uh, I need to make some changes, which is number nine is refining. We continue to refine. We continue to evolve. Now, I made some significant worldview changes when I was 15 as I was coming out of jail. I decided that I did not want to smoke weed any longer. I did not want to curse any longer. I did not want to drink alcohol any longer. Of course, that did not give me the satisfaction or the peace that I was really looking for, but it began to change my trajectory because my worldview was changing, because my assumptions were changing. Eventually, I I came to the place 10 years later as a 25-year-old kid, and, and God regenerated me, and then that really brought a different kind of shape to my worldview. And then number 10 on the list is maturation. Maturation doesn't necessarily mean maturity. I mean, you can have wine that's been in the cellar for 20 years, and it's not a good wine. You can have another wine that's been there for 20 years, and it's a good, it is a good wine. Maturation in this context just means that, that you've been moving down this particular path for a long time. There's a maturation process. Now, it can, it can lead to a bad place or it can lead to a good place. But as you see here on the screen, it all begins with the assumptions that we hold This is how we become us. We become who we are because of those who go before us. Whether it's the complexities of math or how to use a sippy cup, children are dependent on authorities. Those shaping influences come from those authorities that are in our lives, whether it's parental authorities or any other person or thing that can influence us is an authority. We are not independent, freestanding entities insulated and isolated from all influences. These assumptions come from somewhere. They're not created ex nihilo, meaning out 
out of nothing. No, they come from other people. And so that's why it's essential to understand when you're building your assumptions or your presuppositions that, that you're building them based on what other people are telling you and how they are influencing you. As Solomon might say, there's nothing new under the sun. And so we build our truth upon others. The first 10 years of our lives is really the cement setting time. Parents have basically 20 years to rear their children. That's an arbitrary number, generally speaking. And the first 10 years of child development are the most formative. That's when the cement is poured out on the ground and it begins to harden. And those shaping influences make up the constitution of the cement. And so if you go back to the pyramid that I was showing you earlier, you can look at that entire list of things. That is the constitution of the cement. And those are the things that really shape you uh, as a individual. And you will take those things, those that first decade of your life, uh, you will take many of those ideas all the way throughout your life. It is just that powerful. And then the next 10 years, you begin to make your own independent choices based on this early childhood development. Now, from a parenting perspective, it is critical that we spend the first 10 or so years really working in biblical truth into the child's psyche, meaning the child's soul. We want them to have the best possible chance to, to create the right biblical trajectory that will send them to the best kind of biblical goals and experiences in their lives. And we don't have 20 years to do that. We have 10 years, generally speaking, because in the next 10 years, they will start working out what has been worked into them. And so the parent's role for teenagers is more of guiding from behind because this child is growing up into an, a unique individual that is based on uh, those first 10 years or so of his or her life. And then as they move through the next 10 years, now they're stepping, truly stepping in at 20 or so, and they will begin to apply and practice these things all of their lives. And so they're building their lives upon the shaping influences of others. And if you could categorize the authorities that are speaking into these children's lives, you can really put it into two categories. There are really only two competing authorities that's trying to win the day. And the winning truth will win. It will be our truth, biblical truth, or it will be their truth, unbiblical truth. And I would probably put truth for them in quotation marks, because ultimately it's not truth. But I want to compare them side by side just briefly so that you can look at these two competing authorities for your mind, and you can make these determinations yourself. For us as Christians, we start with God. We start with the Lord. Those who reject God, they're looking for another truth. They begin with the culture. For example, if you begin with the Lord, then you recognize that, that you were made by a creator, that you were made in the image of God. And that's a whole different worldview than what the culture teaches 
For example, they teach that you were not made in the image of God and that God is not real, that you are the result of evolutionary practices, that you washed up on the shore and began walking upright. And then after billions of years of evolution, you have we have become who we are today. Ironically, they can only go back a few thousand years to prove their points. Everything else is uh, highly speculative speculative and and subjective because there's no data that would that would support that we are billions of years old but nevertheless that is what they teach and so there is the culture and then there is the lord we have a creator they have evolution our creator has given us the truth contained in the bible the culture has created their own bible called the dsm 5 the diagnostic statistical manual number 5 The implication is clear here. There was a one and a two and a three and a four. There will also be a six, a seven, eight, and nine. Their their truth continues to change. They're making things up as they go along. Our truth was given once upon a time, and because it is truly authoritative and because it is sufficient and because it is accurate in every way, there is no need for evolution of the Bible. Truth is truth, but that's what you see in the culture where male and female, as the Bible taught us from thousands of years ago, it has never changed, and the reason it's never changed is because it's true. But in the culture, male and female is no longer male or female. You have to figure it out later on. And because of the evolutionistic worldview that they have, it continues to change, and it makes sense why there is so much confusion. The DSM-5, by the way, is where we get all of our acronyms, our disorder language, ADD, ADHD, OCD, PTSD, and there's hundreds and hundreds more. And again, it continues to evolve, and that's why we live in such a state of confusion if you are beholding to their worldview and their truth. The Lord created us. He has given us his word that that guides us down a very clear, objective, and satisfying path. Part of why that uh, it is uh, so beneficial to us is because we have a redeemer. We can be made into a new creation. The worldview that has shaped us in the early part of our lives can be altered. As I was saying earlier, God did for me at 25 because I met the Redeemer. Up to that point, I was going through this maze of self-help, trying to figure out how to have my best life now. I was I was given over to the magic of thinking big and think and grow rich and the power of positive uh, thinking. Those are some of the books that I read as I I was looking for this uh, mirage in a desert, trying to find help that ultimately was no help at all, but that is the best that you can do when you're moving down that path. We can, as I said, become new creations, and so we have transformation. The best that the culture can offer you is relief. And so as you look at these two columns here, you see that they are radically uh, different. They're also in opposition to each other, but these are the two main authorities that are vying to take 
take over management in your mind, and you have to decide which one do you want to control you? What do you want to manage you? A worldview that is shaped by the Bible or a worldview that is shaped by the culture? Now, I will just give you a couple of illustrations as to how these two authorities work out in real life. For example, we teach total depravity. What does that mean? We are broken through and through, including the noetic effect of sin, meaning our minds are broken through and through. We are bad to the bone. Now, total depravity doesn't mean that we are acting out in the worst kinds of ways, but what it does mean is that we have the potential, because we are broken through and through, we have the potential of doing all sorts of things. We are not filling up our capacities, and I praise God that you aren't. Uh, I praise God that I'm not, that we're not being as bad as we could be, but we can be a lot worse than we are because we are broken through and through. Now, you see illustrations. You see illustrations through history and and illustrations in present daytime of people who are acting out in ways that, that you can only look at and say, how can they do that? Because they're totally depraved. And only by the grace of God that we are not doing that too, we have the capacity to because of total depravity. The world, on the other hand, teaches people's inherent goodness as though there is a spark of divinity in us. They believe that we're good people at our core. That's why they have initiatives to where uh, they give people things to give them a leg up on life, only to see those people fumble those ideas and misuse and misappropriate those good gifts that they are given because of total depravity. But they believe that if you give them something, they will take it and pull themselves up by their by their bootstraps, but that's not necessarily the case. And so they have the idea that we will continue to move on toward this utopian state as a utopian people. The word utopia means no place, by the way. Ironically, there is no such place as utopia, but they believe in this utopian dream. And so if they just provide everything that we could possibly have to get there, we will get there, of course, Things are getting worse and worse because we're not good people. We need something outside of ourselves to change us. Now, what we believe and they believe are the same in this sense. We both believe that there is something wrong with us. We both believe that there is a problem with humanity, but the issue is how do we get to a place of being different from what we are today? They lead people to feel better about themselves. It's, it's ongoing relief that ultimately never satisfies. We lead people to become transformed or new creations. Before I go further, I do want to take a brief coffee break, and then I'll come back and and wrap up the webinar, but I want to make uh, several appeals to you. I have a list of things here that you can look at, and, and my appeal to you is, would you choose any or as many of these that you can can do and and please no guilt whatsoever uh, you ask the lord what you can do to help uh, partner with us as we continue to take the practical message of christ uh, globally 
our desire, and we made a decision many years ago that we're going to give our resources away, which is why you're watching this webinar here uh, free of charge. And by the grace of God, we're going to continue to do that, but we cannot do that, practically speaking, without your help. And so as you look at this list, would you consider uh, the ways that you can partner with us on this gospel adventure? Now I know that everybody can pray. And so as God brings our ministry to mind, will you pray uh, for our ministry and ask the Lord to continue to work through our team so that we can take the practical message of his son to the world, that people can benefit from these resources and experience the goodness of God and transformation through a biblical worldview. Also, wherever you find us, would you like us, like on social media, just hit the like button and it will help us algorithmic and our algorithmically uh, to be able to spread. Again, our idea is, our hope is to share our resources far and wide, and social media is, is a vehicle in which that can happen, and you can help us by liking. Of course, you can share, uh, you can link this video, you can print off our articles, you can share uh, them with anyone, and we do want you to do that. You can also write a review on our podcast platform, for example, give us a five star rating and write a nice review so uh, not just other people can read it and maybe want to listen to our podcast, but also from an organic algorithmic perspective, it will help us to grow. And not just writing reviews on our platforms, but write your pastor, write a short testimony to your small group leader and say, hey, we, our group, our church, we need to benefit from these resources. Write a letter, a note, a text, an email, and send it uh, to those and and invite us to your place to where we can share either live with me speaking to you all or uh, by bringing our resources to wherever you are. And then give. For those of you who can donate to our ministry, just uh, click the donate button and that would be a huge help. Again, we cannot do this without you. Our resources are free, but ultimately nothing is free, even the gospel. Somebody has to pay, and so if you can help us financially by underwriting our ministry, I would appreciate it. And then finally, our Mastermind program is our all-online training program. If you appreciate these resources and you want to go into a two- or three-year intensive training that is well-supervised, it is it is the hybrid of academic training and practicum all blended into one. And if you want to grow in your discipleship prowess, uh, biblical counseling is how uh, some people understand it. But we, we believe in discipleship, and I prefer that word over biblical counseling. And we, we will teach you according to your capacity, fill you up to your capacity to be an outstanding disciple maker. Please check out our Mastermind program. There are two competing truths uh, that they're vying for authority over your life. And I've been looking at uh, the difference between the culture's view of truth and the Bible's. And so let's go just a, a little bit deeper into that. As you select the truth that you're going to follow, the truth that's going to hold management and sway over your mind, the truth that is going to guide you down a, a unique path to a particular destination, 
Please understand that. You'll have to do this by faith because you and I, we are not omniscient, and we cannot know everything there is to know about these decisions that we are making. There's always an element of faith involved in these decisions that we make. The road eventually stops, and there is a sign uh, at the end that says stop, and you cannot go any farther. And so we have to believe what we believe by faith. And so I want to look very briefly at this idea of accepting the truth by faith. One, nobody has perfect objective knowledge except for God, and we have to be comfortable with that. As I said earlier, Talking about the formation of humanity as we were washed up on shore, as they teach in evolutionary teaching, uh, there is a gap between when we washed up on shore and billions of years ago, and they do not know ultimately, well, we're in the same boat. I mean, you could very easily ask where did God come from, and we would say that God always existed, but there is an epistemological problem there. How do we know that we know that we know that we know? Whether it's biblical truth or the culture's truth, there is an element of faith there. We are people of faith. Now, one of the ideas about faith is the object of it. There are many ways to talk about faith, but in this webinar, I I want to speak to just one aspect of faith. All faith, whether it's the culture's faith or biblical faith, there is an object. Maybe you can think of it like a telescope. Faith is looking through a telescope, and it has an object in the lens. And that object has a gravitational pull, and it pulls us toward this objective or this object. That is a key aspect to faith. And so when you think about the culture's perspective, their truth that you embrace by faith, the object of their faith is self-actualization. That's what you see through the telescope. You see yourself is what you see. Uh, You see a better version of yourself. Sometimes you will hear them say, you know, be the best version that you can be. Be all that you can be. Uh, We talk about self-esteem, esteeming yourself. And so when the culture talks about their truth, it always leads to a better version of the individual. Now, in a vacuum, that doesn't sound bad except Well, it's different from our truth. What we see in the telescope is is God. He is the object of our faith, not ourselves. Our aim is to glorify God. A good way to think about what what does it mean to glorify God, Uh, you could say to spread God's fame. The culture's faith is is about spreading personal fame, about building your platform, about being better than the next person. Our aim is not self-centered, but it is God-centered, and so there's two different telescopes that we have here, and there's two different objects that we are looking at. For example, God's way creates a diverse community of Christ-like worshipers and disciple-makers who esteem others more than the individual. The culture 
they also create a diverse group of individuals, but they are competitive as they esteem themselves more than others. And you'll see that everywhere. When you have a God-centered community, it is a diverse group of Christ-like worshipers and disciple-makers that are distinctly other-centered. They're always esteeming others more than themselves, always counting others more significant than themselves, and it has a communal effect. It doesn't splinter and fracture, but it brings the community together because self Self-centeredness and selfishness is not in that kind of community when we are worshiping God the right way. But then when you look at the culture, you will again see a diverse group of individuals, but what you will see is a competitiveness. You will see people esteeming themselves. They will be making their selfies. They will be promoting themselves. They will be trying to step over each other to be greater than the other person. You can't love another person and, and try to exceed and defeat the other person at the same time. And that's what we see in our culture. It is different groups hating each other. It's individuals trying to push their way over the other way. And you see the culture just continuing to splinter and fracture in a thousand different ways. And so when we are beholding to God's truth and his worldview, it has a unifying effect, a communal effect. When you are giving yourself over to the worldview of the culture, then it has a distinct individualism effect. And I want you to see this and know this as you make your decision as to what worldview and what path you are going to go down. The Christian faith brings believers to a communal point to where we're all collected into one diverse group, worshiping Christ through eternity. Now, that is the fullest picture of it, as you see in Revelation 5, where we're all from different backgrounds and different ethnicities and different nations, but yet we are worshiping God. Well, we can enjoy an echo of that future worldview today because of the already but not yet lives that we live. We are already enjoying this diverse communal privilege, but the whole reality of it is not yet happening, but awaits in heaven. That is a good way of talking about where the Christian worldview leads and the benefits of it. But unfortunately, we have a problem there's a passage of Scripture in Judges 21-25. It's the last chapter and the last verse of the book of Judges. It's two sentences, and it goes like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Second sentence, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, that's where they were then, but you can make an application that this is where we are today. There's no king in Israel. There's no winning truth today. 
Therefore, everyone is doing that which is, which is right in their own eyes. Now, the truth is there is a winning truth, and it's the culture's truth. And that is why I was talking earlier about this splintering and fracturing and the individualism, because everybody is doing that which is right in their own eyes. And that is the problem in our culture today. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. One of the more common questions that you will hear in today's culture and according to their worldview is, how do you feel? Feelings over facts is where we are today. Feelings over truth. Uh, The culture over biblical worldview is where we are today. Let me illustrate that. Let's say that an individual is struggling and they go to an affirmative care doctor or an affirmative care psychologist, and the individual is struggling. And so affirmative care means this. You come to me and you bring your problem and you tell me what the problem is, and I'm going to affirm it. I'm not going to try to talk you out of it. I'm not going to try to help you or give you an alternate way of thinking. I am going to affirm it. It's called affirmative care. And this is what happens in a sexually confused culture. Uh, you could go to an affirmative care psychologist and say, uh, I, I was born a male, but I, I believe I am a woman. That's how I feel. And because I'm affirmative care, then what I'm going to do is to help you track back to your birth. And then I'm going to help you to dismantle historical objective truth where they said that you were a male, and that's what was on your birth certificate, and, and you have a penis, I'm going, to dismant- I'm going to help you dismantle that historical objective truth, and then we're going to let you grow up before you figure out who and what you are. That's the culture's version of truth, and it's all about a feeling and not facts. Biblical truth does not change. They were made male and female in Genesis 1 and 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 27. And chapter 2, verse 7, God raised Adam. He, he built Adam out of the ground, the dust of the earth, and he became a man, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a, a living soul. This is objective fact. There is male, there is female because our truth is the real truth. But the culture, because they are continuing to evolve what they believed in the DSM-1, changed to the two, then the three, then the four, then the five, and now there is no longer male or female. It's, it's however you feel today. And so that is the culture's version, and that is a destructive and confusing worldview and a way to live. What, we're, what they're saying basically is we're going to let your unleashed depravity grow and mature into whatever you want to become. And at that point, you can determine who you are and what you want to be. The Bible tells another story, which is the degradation of humanity. And our best course of action is to attack this problem at its root at birth. Christians do not believe you should permit a deadly dragon to grow into mature adulthood. Without bibliocentric intervention and shaping, we admit and own our depravity. We don't believe in the spark of divinity and that people are inherently good. 
And so we own total depravity, and we perceive the vital need to shape it into another type of person, a perfect person. His name is Christ. And so there is a battlefield in our culture today. It is a sexually confused culture. And you can ask, well, why the confusion? Well, there would be no, no need to look any further than the zeitgeist. The zeitgeist is, or another way of saying zeitgeist, is the spirit of this age. As you look at the spirit of this age, the things that I have been describing to you, talking about their version of truth, their worldview, how the culture views things and how it is ever evolving or devolving, to understand the confusion, there's no need to look any further than the zeitgeist. There is a correlation between diminishing Christianity and cultural confusion. Hold those two things up, diminishing Christianity cultural confusion. There is a correlation, and it is beyond obvious. You see, God is not like the culture. When God speaks, he brings order to chaos. When the culture speaks, they bring chaos from order. Let me give you an illustration of that. In Hebrews 11.3, we have this beautiful verse, by faith. We understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And so the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 11.3 is talking about, in the beginning, God created. So let's go back to Genesis. The word that I want to focus on in this verse in Hebrews 11.3 is the word created. What does it mean? It means kartizo. I want to illustrate it for you here, talking about how God he has chaos, and then he brings order out of that chaos when he speaks his word, his truth, into our lives. And so the world was a chaotic mess, and then God spoke, and God said, let there be light. God brought order out of that chaos, and that's what happened in the beginning in Genesis, and this is what the Hebrew writer is saying in 11.3, that God created. He brought order out of chaos. Well, he does that to us, too. We are born again. We are a chaotic, totally depraved mess. There is no one that does good. There is none that understand. There is none that seek after God, as Paul was telling us in Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12. A total mess. And then God's word spoke into our lives, and we began to reorder our lives. And that was definitely my experience. And many of you who are listening or watching this webinar, that is your experience too. That is what God's truth does. And so when our assumptions are, are built in a bibliocentric way, that is our presupposition, that's going to give us our lens. And from that lens is going to come our interpretations. And out of our interpretations, our belief systems, and from our belief systems, we will have a worldview that will, that will help us to see into the cultural confusion and to make sense out of it. Ironically, America has never been so free. America has never been so economically vibrant. We are the envy of the world in those two ways. But our suicide rates are up. Life expectancy is declining Depression is at an all-time high. Homelessness is rampant 
and young people are more confused than at any time in our history. The one thing that coincides with these startling trends is the overt and hostile shift from a biblically literate culture to an illiterate one. There's a correlation between the diminishing of Christianity and the ever-increasing cultural confusion, and it's not arguable. And so what will you do? As I wrap up this webinar on making sense of a sexually confused culture, I want to ask you a few questions. I would love for you to take these to heart. Not only take them to heart, but make them a conversation. For you young people watching the webinar, please talk amongst yourselves about this, but also talk to those people who have gone a little farther down the road, the millennials in your life and the baby boomers in your life who have a different worldview, in part because perhaps it has been more shaped by the Bible, and in part perhaps because they have something to compare this culture, the Gen Z and the iGen culture to, those born after 1996, because they were born in a different generation. Question number one, do you believe the Bible? Why or why not? Now, this ultimately is the most important question that, that you will ever ask in your life. I mean, apart from, Jesus, will you save me? But the most important question that you will ever ask is, do you believe the Bible? Is the Bible true or false? That is a watershed question meaning that depending on how you answer that question, it will send you in one way or the other. Now, ultimately, when I became a Christian, or right before I became a Christian, this was the question that I had to settle. If the Bible is false, then eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow you die. Live your life. Do what you want to do. It won't be a good life. It won't be a good path. It will not be satisfying. But if you believe the Bible is untrue, go and do what you want to do. But if you believe the Bible is true, then you have some decisions to make. You have to heed to it. You have to obey it. You have to follow it. It has to be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. This here is the most important question that you answer, and how you answer it will set the trajectory for your life. Number two, describe your life. How are you doing personally and relationally? Are you growing into more order, a more well-ordered life, or are you growing into a more chaotic mess? There's a correlation between order and chaos. Diminishing Christianity and increasing cultural confusion, you'll see those two things happening everywhere. Now, if your life mirrors that, if Christianity is diminishing out of your life, you are growing in more confusion and chaos. And so take some time to examine, take inventory of your life. How are you doing personally, internally? Is the soul noise in your life amping down or is it amping up? Are the relationships in your life growing in more unity or competitive dysfunction? Question three, how does your life align with God's word? And so if, if God's word was like a mirror and you look 
into it? Do you, do you see Christ's likeness, or is it a, a distorted picture because your life is not aligning with God's Word? Number four, how are your primary influences impacting and shaping your life? Go back to the pyramid that I presented to you earlier. I gave you a non-exhaustive list, but it was an extensive list of many different shaping influences that are like tributary t- tributaries that flow into our mind, and it, it gives us shape. It, it, it sets up management over our life. It creates our assumptions, our presuppositions, which is the first link in the chain that develops our worldview. And so having control of our influencers is important. Well, people obviously are influencers as well as media, whether it's books or music or podcast or these wonderful webinars that you're getting right here from our ministry your primary influencers will bring shape to your life, and so how are your primary influencers impacting and shaping your life? Number five, this is my last question. What specific practical change do you need to make to create a better way of thinking and living? Now, this is where I would appeal to you to find someone who is a little further down the road than you are. Every Timothy needs a Paul, so find your Paul. Who is that person who has the character, has the capacity, has the competence, has the courage, and has the compassion to speak into your life? A man or woman of character who has a significant capacity so they can draw from God's word, and then three, competently apply it, number four, with courage, they're not going to rubber stamp you, and of course, with compassion, they're not going to be unkind. What specific practical change do you need to make to create a better way of thinking and living? Would you find your Paul or your Paulette and Ask that person uh, to speak into your life. Watch this webinar together. Watch the transgender webinar. Watch the human motivation shaping influence webinar. Collect all of this data together and then begin writing out a specific practical plan to change in whatever ways that God is leading you to do so. The big idea in this webinar is today's sexually confused society It's not difficult to understand if you interpret the problem through the correct filter, through the right worldview. It used to be that everyone identified as a male or female based on objective anatomical evidence at a child's birth. That's God's truth. In the past few decades, what has always been evident to the naked eye is now fluid, ever-changing. It is to be determined based on other criteria that you can't know until the child becomes an adult. That's the culture's truth. In this webinar, I sought to make sense of sexual confusion while offering help and hope for those caught in the tension of those two 
worldviews. Making sense of our sexually confused culture, my name is Rick Thomas. I am grateful that you have watched or you have listened via podcast. If you have any questions for our team, please come to our ministry's website. We are also a dialogue ministry, and so we want to interact with you, and so you can get your free username and password. You can jump on our community forums, and you can ask any question pertaining to life and godliness. Whatever is important to you is important to us, and if it's about making sense of our sexually confused culture, please ask your questions. If it's something else on your mind, please ask it as well. It would be our joy to serve you. Thank you so much for watching this webinar. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.